Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. As you may already know, not all movement practices are designed in an equal way. In the Lit Yoga Method, we help you retrain your brain and body to move better for everyday life. Through physical therapy drills, yoga, functional mobility, core stability, and flexibility, the Lit Method rewires habitual movement patterns and postural imbalances to help you feel stronger, more energized, and more balanced, both on and off the mat. Our online platform, the Lit Daily, is designed for easy convenience with a robust offering of class types, so you can boost your energy while getting stress relief. Improved brain wiring means you will move with more ease and efficiency because we teach you the how and why behind movement choices, not just poses for the sake of poses. All movement teachers on the platform are certified by LIT and share a common language providing education with clear cues that give you the needed reinforcement for enhancing your movement habits. Thousands of students in over 50 countries get LIT to feel more confident, more powerful, and more alive. We offer two subscription options for all levels and bodies. The Lit Daily option consists of over 500 classes in our library, with so many categories I can't even list them, but some include short on time, injury prevention, stress reliefs, and different body parts. There's also a Tuesday and Thursday live class that's streamed on the daily, and there's always a class of the day to help you take the guesswork out of what class to do. Lit Daily members also get 50% off the monthly workshops. The Lit Prime subscription offer has everything in the daily plus over 20 weekly live Zoom classes with Lit teachers providing real-time feedback. This is wonderful for community and to get your feedback from a teacher for your own alignment. We also get free monthly workshops in the Lit Prime option. Both of these are streamable right into any TV or device through an Android, iPhone, and iPad apps. Movement changes everything, and when we move better, we feel better. So sign up for our free two-week trial and see how getting lit can help you feel your best today and for years to come. I'm Laura Hyman, and welcome to Redefining Movement, a lit podcast designed to investigate all aspects of movement from my background in physical therapy and neuroscience. My mission is to help everyone find freedom through smarter movement patterns and compassion for ourselves and others, so together we can live our most uplifted lives, benefiting all beings. Welcome to Friday with Friends. Today I have a old-ish friend with me. She doesn't know we have been friends for a while, but I really look at her as a mentor of sorts. I met Victoria Moran over a decade ago when I was at Vegetarian Summerfest, I was teaching yoga there and she has been coming there since its origination. And she was giving some talks on vegan lifestyle and on menopause. And I thought, who is this glorious human? And here we are talking today. It was such a treat to talk to her. She is an author of many books. She's a motivational speaker. She is a yogi, 
having practiced yoga for decades, but most recently becoming certified, not by lit, although I want her to try it out, but just because she wanted to have community during those early months of COVID. We share so much together and she really inspires me. I think she's going to inspire you so much. And make sure you check out the video of us talking on the YouTube page because you're not going to believe this 73-year-old gorgeous, bright woman is 73. And so she shares some tips for aging well and aging compassionately. Welcome, Victoria. I have known you for years, even though you might not have known me. And you've been one of my mentors in this world of compassionate living. So I'm so grateful to have you on today. Oh, what an honor, because I have been hearing about you all over the place. Oh, thank you. Well, here we go. Here's our connection. So for those who don't know you, what's your elevator pitch? Like, because you have, I mean, you're an author, you're an actress, you're a yogi, you're an activist, like there's a lot, but how do you describe yourself maybe in a way that gives us a timeline of your own life's journey to be where you are today? Well, if we met at a mocktail party and you said, what do you do? I would say I write books because that's really what I believe I came to this planet to do. I had been writing for magazines from the time I was 14. I started writing about the rock groups. I got into my first Beatles press conference at age 14. Paul McCartney bought me a drink when I was 17, which I thought at the time had to be the pinnacle of a life. You know, how much better does it get than that? And my first book, it came out in 1985. And I think it may have been the first book about vegan philosophy and practice to come from an actual publisher. The Vegan Society in the UK had books and the American Vegan Society. But I think that when mine came out, it might have been the first one from an actual publisher. It was called Compassion, the Ultimate Ethic. When I wrote it, I didn't think it was going to be a book. It was the paper that I had to do for a fellowship in college. I was getting my degree in religious studies, comparative religions, and I decided to go to England and study vegans because it was a smaller landmass and there were fewer of them. That's really the kind of thing I've been doing all these years, this dual passion of saving animals and finding the truth, finding what's it all about. This whole inner light thing has been huge for me since I was a little kid. And to me, they're very compatible, those two things. And they meet with the bridge of ahimsa, that bridge of harmlessness and reverence for life. So tell us about when you became vegan and what inspired that. Well, I became vegetarian because of yoga. I had wanted to be vegetarian as a kid, and I would try for a few months, and I'd get really hungry, and my mom would make pot roast or something, and that was the end of that. But at 17, I discovered yoga. Now, we're talking the late 1960s, and you really had to discover it. There were three books in the Kansas City, Missouri Public Library. Two were by Indra Devi, this fabulous Russian woman who did a lot to bring yoga to the Western world. And there's a fabulous biography out about her called The Goddess Pose, which is it's so much fun if you love yoga and <laughs> wild women. And then the other book, interestingly enough, was by a New York City journalist who spent 
three months, maybe, maybe it was six months near where I believe you are in Massachusetts. He was closer to Boston in the Cambridge area with a yoga teacher and her family to see what it would do for him. And that book was called Yoga, Youth, and Reincarnation. And all three of those books said, if you want to be serious about yoga, you've got to stop eating animals. So it took me a while. I got off the land animals when I was 18, got off all of the eating flesh when I was 19, still ate eggs, didn't think there was anything wrong with that or with dairy. And then a couple of years later, I heard about veganism. I heard about you just don't eat anything that ever had anything to do with somebody who was walking, flying, or swimming on earth. And it made complete sense to me in my internal way of seeing how the world ought to operate. But in terms of doing it in the early 1970s, plus I had a binge eating disorder, it was just too much. So I would try. And I'd like these people that try to quit smoking, you know, so many times until they finally make it. That was me with veganism. And I was very lucky that somebody believed in me through all of it. The American Vegan Society had been founded in 1960 by a man called Jay Dinshaw. And he's passed away, but his wife, Freya, who joined him in that pursuit very soon thereafter, is still with us. But Jay believed in me and he would not give up on me. And I would slip and slide and fall off and he would still treat me like a vegan. There was never this like, oh, for heaven's sakes, come back when you've got your act together. Nothing ever like that. He always knew that at heart I was a vegan and one of these days I would make it. And one day I did. And that was 1983 because I'd had my daughter and I'd been, you know, lacto-ovo vegetarian during pregnancy. I knew I wanted to raise her vegan but I knew I had to do it first. So I got really serious about Overeaters Anonymous and got a handle on the eating disorder. And once I knew that I could make choices, the only choice that made sense was the compassionate choice. So I'll be having my 40th anniversary in November. That's incredible. 40. Yeah. So for all the people out there, she's still thriving and looks like you can maybe be in your early 40s easily. Like, it's crazy. You're going to have to give us your secrets, which I'm sure is compassionate living, right? So I'm curious, since you mentioned you were committed to raising your daughter vegan, because I do have lots of people in my life who are also interested in that. And in today, 2023, find that to be a struggle. How did you prepare yourself, but also deal with the world around you at school, other parents, what were the things that really helped you clarify and communicate well what veganism was for you and your daughter was also vegan? And how did that communication land for the people? Yeah. Well, my husband was on board, so that helps a lot. And at the time, veganism was so odd People didn't even argue much about it. If you tell your friends that you're going to go do some really dangerous adventure sport, they will try to talk you out of it. But if you say that you're going to go with Elon Musk to Mars or something, they'll just say, okay, whatever. <laughs> you know, that's just too much to deal with. And that was kind of what veganism was like. Everybody was like, all right, whatever. And just like today, we got no flack 
from medical doctors, tons of flack from alternative healthcare providers. So the chiropractors and the acupuncturists and those folks. I mean, I walked in on an acupuncturist once he was treating my daughter and he was lecturing her about, you know, you wouldn't have this problem if you weren't on that crazy diet. And I burst in and said, look, if you want to talk to somebody about a crazy diet, you talk to me. This is my choice, not her choice, although it really was her choice. Because I always told her, I used to eat this other stuff. Daddy used to eat this other stuff. If you ever feel like that's something you want to try, blah, blah, blah. And she would look at me like, why would I want to do that? Like, who do you think I am? What kind of a barbaric person do you think I am that I would want to eat that? So she never did. And we did find friends, and that's so important and so much easier now because there are lots more vegans and there's so many organizations and meetups and stuff to do online. So it really is just light years easier, not to mention you can actually get hold of some food when you're out somewhere. But then we had friends who were American six. And so they ate dairy, but they didn't eat meat, fish, or eggs. So that was a really wonderful association. And even though my daughter and these two young women are all over different parts of the country, they still get together whenever they can. So there was a real bond forged there. And she had another close friend whose mother was just cool with whatever you do. You know, that this kid is going to piano lessons and this one is going to Hebrew lessons and this one is vegan and I'm going to be okay with all of that. And so I think to just find people who are accepting, and we were talking before we started to record about Vegetarian Summerfest, now called Vegan Summerfest, that you're going to have the 50th one in Johnstown, Pennsylvania next July. And they have a wonderful children's center and all kinds of stuff to support kids. So just once a year to find out that there are lots of vegans. And I mean, I've been vegan 22 years and half of what you have, but I've seen a huge shift. At the same time, going back to what you were talking about, there are just different pockets of the population or different trends that really seem to target vegans in particular with almost some vitriol. I'm curious, your just honest take on that. What is that about? I don't think that people are that concerned with my health or my children's health. That's the driving force. To me, it feels like it's something from their shadow self is talking to me and trying to make me feel bad so that it assures them. But I'm not sure. What are your thoughts? I wish I knew. That's the $64 question. Because I know that there are a lot of people who have no interest in not eating animals. There are a lot of people, even when they learn about the environmental impact, aren't even really interested in lessening their animal product consumption. And if that's the case, I don't push it with them. There are plenty of other people that I can talk to about this who are interested. But the people that you're talking about who really want to bait us and try to get us to change our minds, I don't know. Maybe it's like other things. Maybe it's like religions and politics and stuff like that. They're either so convinced that they're right that they just must get that point across to everybody else. Or maybe they're not so convinced that they're right and feel that the more people that they can bring over make them feel more like it really is the right thing. I believe that deep inside of all of us, whatever we choose to eat, 
we really want to be kind and we really believe we're kind. And if we do something that maybe some people think isn't kind, we come up with a reason why, well, when I do it, it's kind. So I hear all the time, I only eat humane meat. And I'm thinking, even if it really were humane, and that's very debatable, that's two to three percent of the animal products that are out there, extremely expensive. And pardon me, you're not rich. How do you manage, you know, to do that? Do you only eat meat once a month? So they'll say that, or they'll say, mine's organic and grass-fed and all that. Or, oh, this one, this is my favorite. I do it like a Native American. I pray over the animal before I eat it. And I'm thinking in today's world, that's cultural appropriation at best. You're going to do it like a Native American. What else are you doing like a Native American? And what are you doing for Native Americans? (laughs) We're all on this road, as we know as yogis. We're all somehow divinity that got here with all of our vast need for evolution. And so I just have to tell myself, if I think that person is really benighted on veganism, here's all the stuff I'm benighted on. Oh, totally. And that's why I feel like it is really important for people, whoever chooses a path they're on, we certainly aren't thinking we're perfect. To me, it's like a very easy and clear solution that I can participate in, which is nonviolence, right? That to me, it's like almost the easiest thing. It's a lot harder to be a nice person to another person. In my mind, I am a nice person, but I can get triggered like everybody else and I can lose my cool, but I don't do it when it comes to making a choice that is harming a sentient being who has no voice and no opportunity to defend or even have any agency. But we're talking about food. So before we go into yoga, I want you to give me your definition because I think veganism is immediately associated as doesn't eat all this stuff, but it really is so much more. When you meet somebody and they're like, so tell me that what is veganism? Like, how do you describe it to people? To me, it's what Jay Dinshaw taught me, living by doing the most good and the least harm I can on any given day. And that also means the most good and the least harm to myself, to my physical body, to my health, and certainly to the planet. Because I have to admit, some of the stuff that we're supposed to be doing for the environment is very difficult. It's very difficult for me to not use any plastic. I have a real hard time with that. But at least I'm vegan. And sometimes when I start thinking like, oh my gosh, the planet is in so much trouble. Okay, at least. You are a vegan. And I also happen to live in New York City and don't have a car. So it's like, okay, the other imperfections, maybe you're okay because your carbon footprint is size two. And I've actually been noticing this really more recently is how important each individual is, each individual animal, each being, and how, again, we learn in yoga, we're all connected. But to really feel. We are all connected. This morning, I took my dog to the vet and he was telling me a story about how when he was in vet school, he was doing a round in the exotic animal department. 
and somebody brought in their tarantula named Warren because the cat had knocked over the tarantula's terrarium and the tarantula was quite injured. Glass got in his little body and all that. And evidently, the exotic animal vet was deathly afraid of spiders. So through the door, he was talking this vet student (laughs) over how to take care of a tarantula. And as he was telling me the story, I know that even as a vegan, there would have been a time in my life when I thought, okay, it's a spider. It's like, no, that's a being. And my favorite quotation in all the world comes from Mahavira, the Jain saint, who said, to every creature, their own life is very dear. Because however the divine is appearing is really important to that appearance of the divine. And I feel that I'm starting to get that at a really visceral level. And I can't tell you how thrilling it is. It makes it hard because we're having a mouse problem in our condo building here in New York. And they seem to have gotten too smart for the humane traps and all the good food that we try to keep filling them with. And yet somehow we're going to have to figure out how to do this in some way that honors the mice as well as ourselves and our neighbors. I want to share with you a little secret I have. This secret is this amazing skincare line that I've been using now for a year. Now, I am a product queen. It is the one thing I spend money on. I don't spend a lot of money on clothes, but I love products and I love skincare products because I want my skin to really reflect and showcase how I feel inside. But this is honestly the best product I've ever tried. And I love the fact that it's vegan. It's all natural. You could literally eat it because it's totally organic. Herbal face food. It's the most potent anti-aging, multi-correction, antiviral skincare on the market. It's magic. I can't even describe it. I use a little bit of Serum One a few times a week and it tightens up my skin. And then it also kind of whitens it a little bit, makes it feel like all the sun damage disappears. But you can go for the Serum 2, which is like the correction, and that goes into the more sun-damaged areas. So you're just going to have to try it for yourself. So go to the show notes and hit the link. Lara 20 is the code for 20% off herbal face food. I love it. I want to share it with you all. There's never a clear path. There's always going to be inconsistencies because we're human. And so the idea is in these moments of making choices and being conscientious and conscious, can we make a choice that does the least harm, taking into all the considerations? So that is a tough one. Again, to show that no matter who you are, no matter how spiritual or religious or conscious you are, morality is a spectrum for sure. Yeah. And to me, the wonderful thing about being vegan is it gives me parameters you mentioned religion and spirituality. The wonderful vegan rabbi, Shmuley Yanklowitz. Have you run into him? No, but I love the name already. <laughs> oh, he is magnificent. He's a modern Orthodox rabbi out in Arizona. And he's got all the bases covered. He gave a kidney to a stranger. He and his wife have foster children as well as their own children. They go out and actually house the homeless. It's amazing and vegan. And he said, It's fine to be spiritual and not religious as long as your spirituality has the rigor that religion requires. And I think of that as being the coolest thing 
for a spiritual vegan person because vegan spirituality does require some of that rigor, which I have found at times in my life I've really needed. I agree. And on that note, because you have this comparative religion background, you've obviously been a seeker. How would you differentiate between religion and spirituality? Because I think they're interchanged a lot. And he spoke to that a little bit, but I'm curious in your own way, how do you differentiate? Right. I think Christianity actually defines it pretty well when they talk about the letter of the law versus the spirit. That to me, spirituality is how we find the divine and do the work of the divine. And religion is a method pointing to that. And for so many people, they really are one and the same. And, you know, you read about the Catholic mystics and the Hindu saints, all that. And it's just lockstep, hand in glove, and it's beautiful. But I think for a lot of us in this day and age and in this country, either we came into families in religions that we didn't understand or that didn't understand us, and then we sought something else. And then, of course, lots of times people turn around and come back and find the religion again, but find it in a more spiritual way. So I think as long as whatever one's path is uplifting and satisfying and brings more love to this world, doesn't matter much what you call it. I love that. And I feel like in every religion, there is a thread that is the exact same. And that is always this like golden rule, do unto others. And that goes back to this, do the least harm and the most good. And that I think is collectively, most religions would agree with that. The practice of it is going to be represented in different ways. That's it. And there's a wonderful book by Aldous Huxley called The Perennial Philosophy that's all about that. When you get rid of the trappings, when you get rid of the histories and the stories and the myths and the our guy's better than your guy and this is what you do on this day of the week and all that, that's out there and that's fine and everybody can pick their own. But when all that is swept away, you've got this incredible essence, which to me is yoga, which is why I love yoga so much, of trying to reconnect with the divine that we are. I love that. So let's talk about yoga a little bit. I mean, you are a public speaker, you're an author, you have been practicing yoga for decades. What was the impetus to become a yoga teacher? I was actually given permission to teach from my first yoga teacher. So I read those books in Kansas City, then I moved to London because it was swinging London. That was where you're supposed to be. And I found two things. I found Watkins books. Then anybody who's in London or going to London, it's in Cecil Court, the most beautiful little walking alley that has only bookshops and map shops. And Watkins is dedicated to spirituality, esoteric studies, ecology, world religions, all that stuff. So I wandered in there and I knew I was home. And it was probably there I found my first yoga teacher, Stella Churfess. And she took me under her wing and it was perfect. It was just absolutely what I was meant to be doing. 
So my student visa, I was going to a fashion school, expired, and I had to go back to Kansas City, and my teacher gave me permission to teach beginners. So I started doing that in Kansas City, and I just remember how magical it was to get to channel Stella because she had given me so much and then to do that. And I did some of that through my 20s. And then I stopped and I've had periods of practicing asana regularly and not practicing it at all. But always the other part, the Raja Yoga part has always been part of my life. So because back in those days, there was no such thing as a certification or yoga teacher training or anything, I didn't even think about it. But during the pandemic, I received an email from the Bhakti Center. And I knew these folks because their father had a wonderful, still has Ayurvedic health retreat in Florida near Gainesville. And I had been there in 2016 and I'd done a week-long Ayurvedic training So I knew it was going to be a good course. And it was, of course, on Zoom before we were doing everything on Zoom. And I signed up and I was 70. And I kind of said, is it okay? Can I do this with 70? Plus, it was a different style of asana. They do vinyasa. And I've always done hatha yoga, integral yoga. And so they let me do the five classes a week for the certification of five asana classes through integral yoga on Zoom, and then everything else I did with my regular group. And it was just the sweetest thing. It really made that summer of 2020, which was so hard for everybody, it gave me a community. It gave me something to show up for. I teach two mornings a week in my building, and I was doing that before I got the certification. But For me, it's just about knowing more and being in that wonderful world of yoga. And it's always woven itself through my books and my talks. There's always yoga in there because so much of what we understand, even the things nowadays about nutrition, you look at what the yogis recommended thousands of years ago and what the College of Lifestyle Medicine recommends today. Other than dairy, it's the same. And where did these rishis get their information? They weren't doing double-blind control placebo studies. (laughs) They figured it out. They did. And so you have written a book now. What is the book? It's not yet published. Yeah. And it's not yet written. Actually, well, it's almost written because it's an 88-page book proposal, which if you plan to write a nonfiction book and do a proposal for a publisher, it probably shouldn't be 88 pages, but it has 40 chapters. And so to do a decent chapter summary of 40 chapters, you're going to end up with a lot of pages. So it is called Age Like a Yogi, A Heavenly Path to a Dazzling Third Act. And it's about yoga philosophy and Ayurvedic healthcare, Ayurvedic self-care and healthy living for approaching the post 50 decades with physical vitality, but more than that, spiritual vitality, because it gets tough. I remember once doing something about aging. This is about 12 years ago, actually at Vegetarian Summerfest. I was on a panel and the 
person who was moderating asked another woman who was in her 50s and myself how we dealt with the depression of older age. And she and I looked at each other and started giggling. It was like, what? We don't have depression. We've never felt better. Well, you know, she's 52. I'm 62. That's not exactly in one's dotage. But I can see now coming at it further down the line that it's very challenging to look at a life that is mostly lived. Even best case scenario, great blue zone, most of it is lived. And so what do you want to do? How do you want to take care of yourself? Can you really take care of yourself to extend your health span? And I believe you can. Are there guarantees that that will happen if you do these things? Not at all. And so Age Like a Yogi is about all of that kind of thing, of doing our very best to have a splendid life and fabulous health as long as we're here and accepting, dealing with, rising above, thriving through whatever life presents. I love that. Did you say you're 70? I'm 73. She's Okay. Everybody has to go to YouTube and look at this on YouTube because I'm not kidding. We all want to be Victoria. So tell us some good secrets here. Like, obviously, this is not a double-blind study, but in your experience, what have been the things that have kept you? And I know ultimately it's that you're young at heart, you're inquisitive and curious, but are there any beauty tips in addition to lifestyle tips? Yeah, I think you actually, you have the best one and that's attitude. And I wish my attitude were better because that's always, always something to work on. I think it's important to have role models who are older, who can show you it's not that bad. And so I have, for example, Carol Channing, who was just out there. And interestingly enough, she was a Christian scientist, so she never told her age until she was, I think it was 83, and she was still dancing on Broadway. And she decided, okay, I'm a Christian scientist, and matter doesn't really exist, and age doesn't mean anything, but other people think it does, so I'm going to tell them my age. So to just have all these fabulous people that are doing it well and kind of learning from them and being a little bit in their footsteps, in terms of practical stuff, Staying out of the sun makes a lot of sense to me. I think it's probably great to go out early in the morning and get that sun without any sunblock or anything so that it can really help your melatonin at night and you get good sleep and it's really great, but early, early, early. We're talking the real 9 a.m., not the daylight savings thing that messes everything up. So I've largely avoided the sun And I think you also have to decide how you want to relate to this cosmetic aging. So as I see it, there are four aspects of aging. There's chronology. That's what your driver's license has to say about you. And then there's how you look, cosmetic. And then there is physiological. And you can do a lot about that. And then there's attitudinal. And of course, we can do a great deal about that. So on the cosmetic thing, I think it depends on the kind of elder you want to be. So I still color my hair. I mean, it's a Veda and it's cruelty-free and it's non-toxic and all of that. And I don't know when I'll stop. 
I feel like at some big number that's worth a kind of celebration, maybe if I'm heaven forbid widowed, I don't know. I just know I'm doing it today. And people get nips and tucks and tweaks and that. I don't personally have the budget for that at the moment, but if I were to get that kind of budget, I would not be averse to doing that in moderation because I know you can obviously overdo it and cause a lot of trouble. And I just think we shouldn't judge one another for how we want to do it. And then in terms of lifestyle, I do think that the vegan lifestyle, of course, the whole plant exclusive diet with all the green juice and the wonderful raw foods and the colorful fruits and vegetables and the antioxidants. And now there's this new thing. Have you heard about spermidine? No. Terrible name, but it is evidently the nutrient of the moment. Michael Greger's next book is called How Not to Age. And spermidine is found in a lot of foods, but two really rich sources are tempeh, the Indonesian fermented soy food, and wheat germ. And supposedly there is something in spermidine that is rejuvenative. So I hadn't eaten wheat germ since the 80s, but I've been eating it now because <laughs> why not? Giddy up, put it on everything. I know. And I love tempeh, so that'll be a no-brainer. Yeah. So I think just really bringing a lot of life through your food, a lot of life force energy. And again, in yoga, we know prana. So the breathing, the, the food that's still got its life there. I'm not a raw foodist, but I do know that if you plant a raw carrot, you get carrots. If you plant a cooked carrot, you get compost. There's a difference. And so I want to get at least some of that life force energy every day. But I also think that as a vegan, you get a little bit of good karma in the growing old way. Because there's just something about putting that love and caring out into the world. It's got to come back one way or another. And I know a lot of people, it seems to be coming back and how well they age. Well, you are the model for all of us. And I mean that with just such honor. And it is a privilege to grow old, but boy, is it an amazing privilege to grow old well. And like you said, health span, not just the lifespan. You are clearly representing that. I could talk to you forever. I'm sure people will want to hear more. You have so much to offer between your books and your talks. Where's the best place for people to find out more about you? I'll give two websites because they talk about two different things. So MainStreetVegan.com is about the training program that I offer that trains and certifies vegan lifestyle coaches and educators. And there's some information there about other vegan things that I do. And I do the Main Street Vegan podcast that, oh, I got to brag. Yesterday, it got included on the USA Today's list of top 10 vegan podcasts. So very proud to be able to announce that. And then my other website, my author website is victoriamoran.com. So to really get acquainted and be connected, you can sign up for my newsletter over at Main Street Vegan but other stuff just about the writing life and that kind of thing is over at Victoria Moran. Well, I imagine all of these parts of you, all of your different interests and passions and 
choices have led to this alchemy of living brightly. And thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me today. And thank you for saying living brightly, because I was just hearing somebody using that word. I think it was one of those meditation people on YouTube talking about living brightly. And I don't think I'd ever thought of that until this morning. And now you've said it again. And that just came out. I don't know if I've said that before. I mean, I I talk about being lit up, but yeah, living brightly. So that was in the ether. Something to ponder. Thank you so very much. Thank you, Victoria. And for everyone that's listening, make sure you check out Victoria. And as always, I'm pulling for you. Thank you for joining us on this episode of Redefining Movement. If you like what you've heard, please like and subscribe wherever you get your podcast. Feel free to leave us a rating and review or share with someone you know. Check us out at www.litmethod.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.